now I invite Dr. Kuo and Dr. Kaiser back up, and we have our last case-based panel discussion on HIV-HCV co-infection clinical management challenges from Dr. Wiles. Thank you. He did. Oh. Dr. Kuo is gone, so um, he's got a mini panel. But that's all right. We'll we'll re, uh, just request uh, or you know encourage all of you to come up to the microphones too, and we'll make this last part interactive since we're in the home stretch here um, as we go on. Okay, we got some name tags coming up, and we're ready to go. So again, now we're going to hone in on co-infection and talk about some of the unique issues. Um, a lot of them are going to obviously center around drug-drug interactions, which I think um, Dr. Kaiser provides us a nice background. So we're going to start off with a case, 46-year-old Hispanic gentleman, HIV infected, also has type 2 diabetes, neuropathy, and chronic hepatitis C. He came back to the Owen Clinic, or HIV clinic, in San Diego about six months after getting released from prison to reestablish care. He is MSM, but also has a history of intravenous drug use, heavy alcohol in the past, but he's in a sober living house right now and has been off IV drugs and for a number of years and alcohol for uh, probably over a year. Well, since going into prison, presumably. His HCV was diagnosed in the mid-90s, positive antibody. Clinically, he had never had an episode of jaundice or um, symptoms of end-stage liver disease. His medications you can see there include metformin, tenofovir, FTC, boosted darunavir, gabapentin, dronabinol, and morphine. His physical exam is unremarkable, specifically no signs of end-stage liver disease from physical exam. Here is laboratory values, pretty normal uh, albumin and um, bilirubin INR. His ALT and AST kind of as you'd expect, 75 and 67. Pretty normal CBC as well. He had had an ultrasound since reestablishing care that showed a mildly enlarged liver um, with normal echogenicity and contour. He did not have evidence of splenomegaly on a recent ultrasound and did not have any ascites. And he's heard about these new HCV medications and is interested in treatment. So here's the first question. What additional tests or information will have the greatest impact on your recommendation regarding his HCV therapy? His stage of liver fibrosis, his HIV treatment history, his HCV genotype, his IL-28B, or his HCV viral load. So what would you most like to decide? Okay, so it's about split between stage of liver fibrosis and genotype subtype, okay? Well, what would you like most, Dr. Peters? Well, I think the question is, does he need treatment or could he wait? And for that, actually both will help you answer that because if he's genotype 2, then you're going to get away mm -hmm. if he doesn't have cirrhosis with a short treatment duration with a, not a lot of drug-drug interactions. If right. he's genotype 1, then you really want to know his stage of fibrosis because that's going to impact how long you treat him, even though the phase 2 data are um, all fixed duration of therapy. Right. People are playing with response-guided therapy. Yeah, perfect. And I think... Um, what this question was kind of, I think, is, is stage of liver fibrosis. But you're right. I mean, if he's a non-geno-1 non patient, that's going to obviously big a, big, make a big difference in how you treat him. And the other thing, things are also important. Oh, yeah. Because as, as Dr. Kaiser told you, if you have multiple um, HIV, treat, you have a complicated treatment history with mutations, you may mm -hmm. not be able to move to... In, you know, DAA-friendly yeah. regimen, and if you're IL-28TT, then you're not going to respond very well, so why bother? And if you have an extremely high viral load, that's probably the least worrisome because yeah. nearly every HIV patient does. You want everything. I want everything. Yeah, okay, I see. Um, so just to um, go over this again, this is um, some mortality data that was just recently published by Andrea Branch and... Uh, her group at Sinai in New York about the impact of hepatitis C on mortality in, in patients with HIV. Um, so this was a cohort they followed. Um, most patients had a mean follow-up of about five years, but they did have some out to 10 years. And if you can follow here, um, so these are patients who don't have evidence of any HCV infection here in the dark line, on, kind of on the bottom, especially as you get out further in follow-up. And then there are patients here who 
cleared their hepatitis C, so they had an antibody positivity, but they didn't have HCV RNA. Um, and then there are patients with chronically infected, and you can see the, the highest mortality, all-cause mortality, in patients who are HCV co-infected along with their HIV. And again, from the DAD study, um, this gets thrown around a lot, but worth mentioning again that liver disease is really the leading non-AIDS cause of death in those with HIV. So about 14% in the most recent iteration of the DAD study that was published, 14% uh, uh, that was responsible for 14% of the deaths in the DAD study was liver disease, with the majority being hep C-related liver disease. Um, and this is the other study to look at this. This again is from the Johns Hopkins group. It was recently in JAMA. I had shown you earlier in the day the, the stuff about the impact of treatment on SVRs. But this is just where they, at the initiation of their cohort and follow-up, they got a liver biopsy on these 638 patients. And then this is purely survival curves based on their initial stage of fibrosis on their liver biopsy. And it separates out very nicely. Those with the least amount of fibrosis did the best over long-term follow-up over 10 years. And as your fibrosis progresses, your mortality increases over a 10-year follow-up period, all based on just that baseline liver biopsy fibrosis stage. Um, if you look at some of the other things that impacted the all-cause mortality, which is here in this column, or liver-related mortality, having F4 stage of liver disease obviously was certainly an increased risk for all-cause mortality and a much higher risk for liver-related mortality. Um, but then other things that were also um, protective. So a higher CD4 count, CD4 count over 350 was protective for all-cause mortality, as we would expect, but also for liver-related mortality. And similarly, being on antiretroviral therapy was protective both from all-cause mortality and specifically liver-related mortality. And probably some of that relates to this finding. This is from Norbert Brow's study, where it just showed um, in patients who had a biopsy done, they looked at the fibrosis progression rate, and what they found first in their cohort was overall there was no significant difference between those who were co-infected and those who were mono-infected. And that was initially a surprising result based on cohort studies and other long-term follow-up studies that had suggested that HCV progression was faster in those who were co-infected. So when they kind of parsed this out and looked at it, they looked at the fibrosis progression rate by HIV viral load in these co-infected patients. And what you can see is the patients who had their HIV suppressed had lower, significantly lower fibrosis progression rates on a biopsy than did those who were HIV viremic. Um, and then there is even a dose response with HIV viral load. So as the HIV viral load goes up, the fibrosis progression rate goes up. Now these are single point in time biopsies, so it's a single biopsy with an estimated date of infection. So there certainly is some inaccuracy in that um, assessment. Um, but there's other data mostly from Ray Chung and his group about how HIV may actually do this kind of pathophysiologically. GP120 of HIV can stimulate TGF beta production and you know, pro-fibrotic cytokines in hepatic stellate cells and different things. So there are some kind of pathophysiologic mechanisms that at least make biologic sense about how this interaction might work. And this is just showing it in another form here in a graphical form. I won't belabor that. So IL-28B, Marion mentioned that she, she might like to have that. And this is just to show, and I think we've mentioned this already, that um, in co-infected patients, IL-28 uh, status is also a significant predictor. Here you can see patients who were CC and treated with PEG and ribavirin alone, 68% SVR versus those with a T allele, the unfavorable allele, only 28% response. Again, this is just with pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy. This is not including a protease inhibitor. So let's come back to the case. So we've got a lot of the information you wanted here. He's a 1A, high viral load. IL-28B is CT. Stage of liver fibrosis. So a biopsy shows bridging fibrosis, F3 out of 4. And here's his HIV treatment history. So he had a detectable viral load in prison on tenofovir FTC and efavirenz. Um, and actually, that was just stopped when they released him from prison and said follow-up in your HIV clinic. So he was seen in our own clinic. Um, they got a baseline genotype before they restarted him on therapy. He did have a K103N, as you would expect. Um, the genotype did not show um, a K65R or an M184V. Um, and he didn't have any significant PI mutation. So actually, um, his HIV provider started him on boosted darunavir-based regimen about four months before he came to our co-infection clinic, and he was undetectable about two months after starting that. So you have to remember all that. So what would you recommend right now? So you have a guy, again, genotype 1A, high viral load with an F3 stage of disease on his biopsy who's on a darunavir-based regimen right now. So we'll see if you were listening to Dr. Kaiser, right? So would you treat him right now with peg and riba? Go ahead. Kristen, I think. 
I hesitate. I know. They can read. All right, so let's see if people got it in. I think it catches them off guard. So what did people choose? 84% said treat with PEG, ribavirin, with or without a change in ARV. So, all right. And a few would do bocephavir. Nobody is going to just um, do watchful waiting in this guy, and I think that's really the appropriate thing with F3. Um, Marion, do you want to comment first about just whether you treat him or not or what you would do? I think here's somebody who's already got very severe fibrosis in his liver. You don't know. You know that co-infected patients, their rate of progression is concertina, so it's like post-transplant patients, and he may not be able to wait the subsequent three years for the next available therapy. So I think it's very reasonable to look for ways to treat him. Dr. Kaiser, what about the drug interactions? Well, they're absolutely a consideration. Yeah. I mean, should I steal your thunder here? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, go ahead. I think, I think the audience remembers. What's the problem with Darunavir? Yeah, you can't give it. You okay. Can't give it. <laughs> Which way do they go? So yeah. he's, there's going to need to be a change to his antiretroviral therapy, regardless of whether you choose the telaprevir or bisepivir. And what antiretroviral therapy could he change to, given his mutations? Oh, yeah. What, what would you change him to? Yeah. We have some, I hear some reatazes. Okay. Yep. So adizantivir would be fine, with, um, but only with one of them so far. Which one? Telaprevir and adizantivir. Okay. And what was the other one that was safe with either one? Raltegravir. So it looks like he could switch to a raltegravir-based regimen from the right. Darunavir because he only has a K1 to 3N, which would only knock out the um, non-nucleosides. Perfect. Right. There might be. Yeah. So we'll come to that. First, just uh, since I don't think we've shown this yet, these are we've alluded to these data, and, and uh, Dr. Kaiser mentioned them briefly. Um, so this is just the design for the telaprevir phase 2B co-infection study. Um, I think the things to point out, one, are they had two arms, one that was not on any antiretroviral therapy, and the other arm only allowed bucetazanavir or favorins-based regimens. Again, reiterating, again, what Dr. Kaiser said, that if you did use, if they were on a favorins, they had to do 1125-POQ8 of telaprevir. Um, and then the other thing to point out is, you'll notice here, everybody gets 48 weeks of pegribavirin. So in this study design, there was no response-guided therapy. So it was all 12 weeks of telaprevir and 48 weeks of pegribavirin. Um, and there were placebo arms here in this study. But these were the kind of top-line results, and this is SVR12 data. Um, we'll be getting the final SVR24 data probably pretty soon, but essentially what looked to be pretty much identical results to what we're seeing in mono-infected patients. So for the overall HIV-infected group, 74% SVR12 compares to 75% from the advanced study. Um, only 38 patients, so... Um, remember back to what Marion said about small numbers in, in groups of studies with the initial interferon monotherapy study. So that could change some, but it's encouraging. Um, but the thing to note here is the controlled group did pretty darn well for an HIV co-infected population. Um, they also looked as good as the mono-infected population with PEG and RIBA, which is not something you would have predicted. Again, very small numbers, 22 patients. So encouraging data, but certainly not definitive. Um, here's the bocepivir co-infection study. The lead-in is back with bocepivir, but again, you'll see no response-guided therapy here. It's 44 weeks then of triple therapy or a placebo arm. Um, in this study, as again, Dr. Kaiser mentioned, um, all boosted protease inhibitors were allowed, essentially, but um, no NNRTIs were allowed in this study. Um, so, and, and they had somewhat different futility rules the, than they had really what are standard PEG ribavirin futility rules. They didn't use the bocepivir futility rules from the mono-infected trials. But here again are the top of the line, top line data. Um, so here you can see the SVR data, and this was updated. Um, the initial presentation showed 61%. There were still three patients in follow-up at that time for SVR. They all subsequently had SVRs, um, as was mentioned orally at the EASL meeting. So 63% in the co-infected patients had an SVR 12. Um, and again, that compares very favorably with, say, the SPRINT2 data for the 44-week arm in that case where they had a 68% SVR rate. So again, Encouraging data, a few more here in the bocepivir study, but still not a lot of patients with 64 in the, in the bocepivir treatment arms. Um, and then here's the IL-28B status data. Again, this is not in co-infected patients. This is mono-infected data, and I showed this to you earlier with the treatment naives, but just to refresh your memory, um, the big real change for me when I think about it is 
is for patients with the unfavorable T allele, you can see here, if you're just treating with PEG ribavirin, um, very low response rates um, with 25%, um, and I don't think that's 3%, actually, I'd say, but still, it's a, a large delta when you look at the 12 weeks, almost 50% increase if you have a poor allele when you add in the protease inhibitor, whereas not as profound a difference for patients who have the favorable CC genotype. Okay, so you decide to initiate tilapavir-based therapy. What changes need to be made to his HIV regimen? Nothing. You're going to begin triple therapy. Or are you going to discontinue his tenofovir and FTC and start abacavir 3TC? Are you going to discontinue darunavir and begin raltegravir? Discontinue darunavir and begin atazanavir? Um, and I don't like any of these options. I want to do something else. And there may be more than one right answer. So most people wanted to go with raltegravir, about a third were going to go with atazanavir, and 2% didn't like having that tenofovir around, but um, any comments on that, Dr. Kaiser? About the not having the tenofovir around, or about yeah, the Or, you know, are you a raltegravir kind of girl, or an atazanavir <laughs> kind of girl? I think it really depends on the patient. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think both are good choices, so yeah. that's great. I will say, I mean... All things being equal, like in this patient where we don't feel there's a HIV resistance reason to um, use atazanavir, we would probably pick raltegravir. Um, I think it makes your life a little easier. You know, you, you start on atazanavir, the billy's going to come up a little bit. Um, and then we've had these potential, which I think we even sent you a sample or something. So we've had a couple patients that we've start, we're on atazanavir. You start in tilapavir, which is going to raise atazanavir levels a little bit. Atazanavir already raises tenofovir levels a little bit, right? And then tilapavir raises tenofovir levels. So we've had a few patients that get some mild renal dysfunction early, and we're kind of not sure, is it the tenofovir now because it's going up more? Is it the tilapavir? So, I don't know. Well, and the bilirubin's a good point. So, yeah. you know, you, you have difficulty then teasing out when the bilirubin's right. elevated. Is there, is there any... Effects of, is this PEG here? Is yeah. it bothering the liver? Is this raltegravir? I mean, ribavirin causing um, anemia. Yeah. And, and so the bilirubin part does get a little messy there. Yeah. So I think it just gives you a little less in the way of headaches if you feel raltegravir is safe to do from the HIV standpoint. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. Well, hopefully, I mean, no, it's a great point, right? Raltegravir is not going to be forgiving if they miss doses. Right. Hopefully. What's that? Right, that was kind of my point. I mean, usually patients were getting ready to do tilapavirin where they have to take it Q8 hours with food. Hopefully you have a pretty good idea that they're going to take their medicines well. But no, it's, it's a point well taken that raltegravir, yes, is, is not uh, conducive to missing doses. Okay. And I think, uh, again, Dr. Kaiser showed you this data already. Um, what I just put in here in red are the decreases in the trough concentrations. I think it's still a very open question about do we care about trough concentrations for HCV protease inhibitors where all the action is in the liver? I think for HIV drugs, right, I'm used to thinking about troughs really is what I worry about most. Your trough concentration is what you want to target really. Um, for HCV protease inhibitors, uh, I don't think we know and I think Gene Morris and some other pharmacologists make would make an argument that you probably don't care so much about the trough or what you really want to know is the intrahepatic concentrations of your drugs and I don't know if there is a good serum uh, surrogate for an intrahepatic concentration, probably not. But again, as, as Jen pointed out, atazanavir was the one that caused the least disturbance in tilapavir levels, dropping the trough by about 15%, the AUC similarly about 20%, with all the other ones causing at least numerically higher decreases in both total exposure and trough concentrations of tilapavir. Um, and she already went through this as well. Um, if you look at the, the effects of HIV PIs on bocepravir, atazanavir, no change in the AUC, but an 18% decrease in C-min. And actually, this is reflected. European guidelines would suggest if you felt like you absolutely needed to use bocepravir, you could do it in somebody on atazanavir. Um, the DHS HHS guidelines have not gone so far as to kind of recommend atazanavir use with bocepravir. Um, but again, the easel statement, I think, does uh, mention that. And then the other ones, darunavir causes about a 30% decrease in trough concentrations and AUC, lopinavir even more. Um, and again, uh, Dr. Kaiser also mentioned this, that the phase 2B data looked good, but then the drug-drug interaction data kind of, you know, it's hard to know what to do in this situation. Any other comments? Marion. 
Well, I think it's interesting because I'm told by my HIV <laughs> colleagues that in many situations the normal volunteer data was different from what was seen in patients. So I think we don't know. We know the phase two, which is small numbers, it looked fine. Their response rates were the same on protease inhibitors as on other drugs. And secondly, breakthroughs of HIV called, caused, uh, occurred three times as often in the PEG-RIBA than the PEG-RIBA plus bisoprevir. So actually, Dr. Kaiser's studying that in um, ACTG5294, which was triple therapy. And I think in 300 patients, so being able to look at 100 patients on various drugs, maybe we'll get a better idea of whether it's safe or not, because they're being very carefully monitored and excluded if there are issues. Do you want to comment on that? Sure, I think there's several potential mechanisms for these interactions and we definitely need to understand it better. Um, one could be hepatic induction. You know, maybe there is some hepatic induction and there, therefore these drug concentrations are reduced. Um, another potential mechanism though, and one that I think might be more likely is that there's some type of protein binding interaction where the drugs are displaced from their binding sites. So the total concentrations look low but if you just measured unbound or free drug, which is the part responsible for antiviral effect, that it would not be changed. And so um, that's what we're studying in the ACTG study. We're also looking at it in our healthy volunteer study that we looked at um, etrovirine and bisoprevir. So we're trying to figure out if the etrovirine, if its protein binding was altered. So um, you know, we, we definitely need to reconcile this disconnect between the phase two data and the healthy volunteer drug-drug interaction data. And as, as Dr. Peters mentioned, um, you know, the interaction can look different in a person with viral hepatitis and liver disease. You know, the, the concentrations can be much higher of the drugs, and perhaps a 50% reduction doesn't hurt because you already have high levels. So th there's a lot of uh, questions unanswered here. And this is just a summary of kind of the, the flip side of the reaction, um, what happens to the uh, HIV PIs during co-administration. Um, and again, I think we've kind of run through this, but you can see pretty much across the board with bosepivir, at least if you look at total drug concentrations, um, you see decreases in AUCs and CMINs for all the uh, HIV PIs tested, and then adazanavir kind of sticking out as the lone one that went up with tilaprevir co-administration. And then again, this is what we've all been alluding to. These are the breakthroughs that occurred in the patients treated with bosepivir. Again, as Marion said, there were three of the 64 in the bosepivir arm that had HIV breakthroughs, but actually four of 34 in the control arm had HIV breakthroughs. Um, and these are just what their viral loads did. They were all undetectable at baseline. And then you can see here um, two of the patients on adazanavir by week 24 and one, and by week 36 and one had detectable viral loads. Um, in this case, went up even further when they came off therapy, and then one patient on lopinavir. Um, but what to make of this is unknown, and you have to remember also in this setting, you know, when they're on pegylated interferon, that's another HIV drug that is in the mix. It's about a half to one log HIV drug in and of itself. So, you know, at this point, I think we've beat this to death, but it's really hard to know what to make of this data. Okay. Oh, it gets bigger. Look out. <laughs> scared, scared some people. All right. I forgot that was in there. And these are the Favrin's interactions. Again, I think we've covered this quite a bit. Um, it's very similar in terms of what happens to the HCVPIs when you co-administer Favrin's, which is a CYP inducer. Um, so you decrease the levels of tilaprevir and bosepravir. Um, the reason it's recommended is because there was, at least there is some clinical data to guide dose adjustment with tilaprevir. We just, we just don't have that data right now. Um, uh, co-administration is being looked at in the phase three ACTG study with bosepravir and Favrin's, so we shall see. Um, and you already saw this raltegravir data, so I won't belabor the raltegravir data. It looks fine to co-administer. And these are the DHHS guidelines, which uh, Jennifer had alluded to. Um, again, you really, your only option to, for, for using either one is either they're not on antiretroviral therapy, they're on raltegravir, um, if you want to use bosepravir. Um, and then um, Marion was on an article with Dave Thomas and some other luminaries in the field. And... Um, they really kind of came down similar to DHHS guidelines that you should avoid both sepravir with the Favrins and all boosted PIs till we have more data um, in a, outside of a study setting anyway, and then avoid again tilaprevir with the Runavir or Falsamprenavir and Lopinavir. Okay, and we've seen this before too, wow. All right, 
So now we're going to come back to the patient, but we're going to change his HIV treatment history. So still same guy released from prison, was detectable on um, efavirenz based regimen, but now when he got his HIV genotype in addition to a K103N, he had an M184V, um, which you, would not be surprising at all. Still didn't have a K65R and had no PI mutations. So with that, he was still started on a darunavir-based regimen and did suppress um, and had been undetectable for two months. But now what would you do in terms of thinking about what type of medication change to make to accommodate PI-based therapy? Would you start triple therapy? I don't think anybody's going to do that based on what we've talked about now. Stop his tenofovir or discontinue his darunavir and begin raltegravir. Discontinue darunavir and begin adazenavir. I don't like any of these. I want to talk to Dr. Peters. So go ahead and... Got a feeling. Okay. So 45% still wanted to do raltegravir, which is interesting. Probably not what I would have picked, and so we'll talk about that. And then 42% liked adizanavir. A few didn't like any of the options and wanted to talk to uh, Marion. So uh, Marion or Jen, any comments? He needs extra protection. What are you going to do? He needs extra protection. All right. Good. So let me show you what she's alluding to. So, um, I mean, I think this is important. When we are switching patients off their HIV regimen, it's just important to be as thorough as you can and make sure you understand what their HIV treatment history is. So this is data from Joe Enron published in Lancet in the Raltegravir in the um, SwitchMerk studies, um, SwitchMerk 1 and 2. This is the combined data. And these are the percent of patients with HIV RNA less than 50. So the percent less than 50. These were patients who coming in were all on a lopinavir-based regimen and suppressed. And then at the start of the study, they'd either stay on their lopinavir-based regimen or could switch to raltegravir. And what you can see here is that patients who stayed on lopinavir had uh, you know, over 90% remained suppressed, whereas the patients who switched to raltegravir in this experienced group, there was more breakthrough in terms of their HIV viral loads in switching to raltegravir. Um, from the SwitchMerk-1 study. Same thing was seen in the SwitchMerk-2 um, and in the combined data set. And in particular, what I want to point out is um, in the combined data set, they did this, these analyses of why, um, what were risk factors for having this virologic failure in the patients who switched to raltegravir. And what I'm just showing you here is a reported history of virologic failure. So if the, if the investigator reported that the patients had a history of prior virologic failure before they were on this suppressive lopinavir regimen they came in on, um, they were much more likely, if they were switched to RAL and had this history, to break through, to, to not be suppressed. Only 76 were suppressed versus 92% if they stayed on lopinavir-based regimen. That was a 15% difference. Um, and when they went back and sequenced the patients who broke through in the raltegravir arm, they had integrase resistance, but they almost all also had an M184V. So again, this is reflecting that um, in what was brought up earlier, raltegravir is a relatively low resistance barrier type of drug. And so if you have another component of your regimen that you're using with raltegravir that is potentially compromised. In this case, our patient had an M184V, so his FTC is probably not going to be doing a whole heck of a lot. Um, you are opening yourself up to potentially having breakthrough when you just essentially have raltegravir and tenofovir as your active components of your HIV regimen. And so I, I would make the argument that adizanivir is probably the safer choice in that situation. I, I, we wouldn't use raltegravir in a patient who had this history trying to treat them for their HIV. Now, you do have PEG, so you may get away with it if they're already suppressed coming in and you're going to go on PEG pretty quickly, but I think it's a risk. Were you going to say something, Jen? Yeah, what about adding another agent? So, so you could do raltegravir and add something else, but what are you going to add? I mean, you're going to likely add adizanivir, right? Or, or I guess... Or L-vitegravir. Yeah. Um, not L-vitegravir. Um, no. Etrovirine. or another nuke even. Right. Yeah, so you could do etrovirine, which, you know, you showed some of the drug-drug interaction data you could probably do. Um, I mean, you could do that if you really, for some reason, didn't want to use adizanivir. I'd probably do that as opposed to going to four HIV drugs, but yeah. you could do that. Any other comments from the audience? Okay. So he's changed to adizanivir therapy, and he begins. So at week four, his HCV RNA is undetectable, um, but by week five, his hemoglobin's gone down to 9.4, and he started at 14.3. Um, so in this case, we went from 1,200 to 800 milligrams. This must have been one of our earlier patients because I was just thinking, oh, I probably would go to 600. Mm -hmm. um, week 12, his HCV RNA was undetectable. 
week 16, ANC of 572. So he was started on GCSF, um, 300 mics at 572. Um, week 20, progressive fatigue, pegs at 180. His ribavirin's now down to 600. He's still on GCSF, and his hemoglobin's 9.8. So he's achieved an ERVR, so an extended rapid virologic response. And remember, he was an F3. How long would you continue treatment? So go ahead and you can read the choices and, and pick for how long you want to keep going with uh, PEG and RIVA. Okay, so the majority want to go for 48 weeks of PEG ribavirin despite having an ERVR. Um, and I guess this comes down to what Marion said before. Are you a chicken or a cowboy? Um, Marion, which are you? Well, I, you worry about his anemia, yeah. and I think in his case I would have put him on EPO if, mm -hmm. if we could have got it from the insurance company because even though you dropped the dose, and you dropped the dose at six weeks? Yeah, I think at six weeks he went to 800, and then by you know, the week 24 he, had been down to, he was down to 600 milligrams. Yeah, so he's, he really needs a little oomph. So... I think I would have get started EPO earlier, and I mm -hmm. tend to start EPO earlier in my co-infected patients. And then there's the balance. He's F3, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're F3, could you use response-guided therapy? Nobody's done the study. If he's F4, you know he needs 48 weeks. So in his case, you have to decide seeing the patient, maybe the somewhere between 24 and 48, has he had a cardiac evaluation? You know he's going to tolerate a hemoglobin of nine and not drop dead of a myocardial infarction, which mm -hmm. would be successful hep C treatment, but overall failure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think you have to balance it. Mm -hmm. And I would certainly talk to the patient and see what... Yeah. He, there are plenty of renal patients who walk around with a hemoglobin of nine right, and fine, but it's yeah. very different when it happens quickly. Yeah. Are you in general, though, any of your co-infected patients, are you do using RGT right now? No, we're doing the 48 You're weeks. doing the 48 across the board. But I would, I would if a patient couldn't tolerate right, it, if, if you were say, pressed. well, he would be a, so who yeah. could be a patient, you could stop. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what we're doing as well. I mean, we, we set out to do 48 weeks. That's the expectation we start with with all our co-infected patients, you know, that we're not going to shorten based on RGT, but I think just as Marion pointed out, I mean, if you get these people that become severely depressed, they're having crying spells, and you, you try to dose reduce them a little bit and can't manage them, and they've had a great early response, we're more likely to just stop, you know, once we get past 24 weeks. Jay. So why would you reduce to 135 is a question. And I, I think the anemia is really likely related to his ribavirin, and I would have given him EPO. I don't think there's a great benefit to drop. But if you drop to 135 after 24 weeks, you, the old data with PEG-RIBER, I don't ha know any data with the Seprevir and Telaprevir, would tell us that you don't lose anything if it's after the 24 weeks. So maybe that would be a compromise. We definitely have seen, not so much, I think you're right, not for anemia, you wouldn't dose reduce. Some neutropenias that don't respond very well to GCSF and then just, again, like fatigue, irritability that really piles up on people. I mean, some people really feel quite a bit better if they just go down to 135, at least in my experience. So. Do you have any data on triple therapy and late reduction of PEG? I mean, we've done it in a few, but uh, I, I but I don't think there's no any published yeah. data to help tell No, I don't think there's any do. published data. No. I, anecdotally, I don't, we haven't seen any breakthroughs late like that when we would do this. Okay, and this, again, seen before, this is the data in mono-infected, but again, there's no data in co-infected patients at this point, although um, what I want to show you, so there's an ongoing phase three study, which is looking at response-guided therapy with telaprevir um, for prior, for naives or prior relapsers, getting kind of what is the standard mono-infected response-guided therapy approach. The other notable thing about this phase three study, which is on clinicaltrials.gov, is they're using 1125 BID in co-infected patients, at least as long as they're not on a Favrins. Obviously, if they're on a Favrins, they need to use the higher dose because of induction. But so um, not only looking at response-guided therapy in co-infected patients, but looking at uh, BID dosing of telaprevir. 
What about the PK of tilaprevir? Do you think BID dosing is reasonable, Jen? So there was a small study looking yeah. at the PK um, and response rates even with BID, and, and they were comparable. And the half-life's 9 to 11 hours, so that would suggest you could get away with twice-daily dosing. I'm right. interested to see the results. Yep. And then similarly, which we've mentioned, ACTG5294 is also looking at response-guided therapy, but only in, in treatment naives with um, bocepravir. Uh, in co-infected patients, um, otherwise pretty standard um, approach to doing response-guided therapy in those who are treatment-naive. So we should have some answers, hopefully relatively soon, about response-guided therapy in co-infected patients with bocepivir and tilaprevir. So second case. This is a 53-year-old uh, black gentleman with well-controlled HIV on raltegravir-based regimen, former injection drug user but been clean for several decades. Um, so he's treatment experienced. So in 2008, he was treated with PEG and RIBA, um, full doses, but did require dose reduction early in his case. So at week eight, he had to go down for, a, for an ANC of 750. Um, and he was a null responder, essentially. He had a poor response, less than one log drop at week 12. So he comes back in, and same thing. He's interested in retreatment with HCVPIs. Here are his laboratory studies. Um, Pretty stable. He's a 1A with the high bar load, 1.4 million. He has the, also has F3 on biopsy, and that was a serial biopsy. We had one in 2008 that was F2, so he had shown some progression on um, serial biopsies done about three years apart, uh, and they look like good biopsy samples. So what would you recommend for this gentleman? Would you retreat him with PEG and RIBA, but for an extended period of time? Would you add in a protease inhibitor? Um, or would you defer, defer in this gentleman who's F3 until um, you have either quad regimens with interferon or interferon-free regimens, um, would you check an IL-28B and then decide what to do? So most want to treat with the PI. Um, a few want to check an IL-28B. Marion, what do you want to do? I want to treat him, okay. but I am not averse to finding out his IL-28B really? status. Oh, man, you love that test. Because okay. it's going to make it, you, you know, you're going to tell him he'll have a lower response. Do you think in a, a prior null responder? Uh, I, the I think he's already shown you what he's going to do with interferon, but, you know. It, yes, but I, I think that we know that they'll, he's, he has a poor response. Yeah. But... If he's a TT, I think he'll have a poorer response with <laughs> okay. triple therapy. Poorer than a less than one log? How can yeah. you say no? Okay. Because some of the people who didn't drop a log, yeah. right, and then you followed them the next four weeks, it was the ones who didn't do it again that mm. had no chance. Right. So if you think of the yeah. Bruce Bacon's data, right. so he's in the poor initial response, and then if you look at eight weeks, which is the first 12 we four weeks of triple, that really decides whether you stop then or keep yeah, going. Yeah, what you do yeah, with bocepivir. Okay. Well, let's see. So, again, you've already seen this data. This is the retreatment data with tilaprevir. Again, he's a null responder, so we're going to throw him over here probably. Um, so maybe the 30% category, but then remember if you throw in fibrosis stage on top of that, um, I think, which maybe is even the next slide, um, you know, null responders. So he's got F3, so maybe he's here. Again, Marion showed you this data before, mentioning specifically cirrhotics. It really gets kind of grim for their responses, even with um, protease inhibitor added in for a prior null responder who's a cirrhotic. Um, so here's the bocepivir data. We already made the case that there's no prior uh, null responders in the bocepivir data, but there was um, this the PROVIDE study, which was presented, which essentially took patients treated with or in bocepivir trials, like the, the phase two and phase three trials who got were, were randomized to placebo arms, but they had their data on them, so they were true null responders in the previous bocepivir trials. They were eligible then to enter the PROVIDE study um, as prior null responders as part of the placebo arms in previous bocepivir trials to then get treated with bocepivir. Uh, again, so these were true nulls in the previous trials where they got placebo. So they were now treated with a four-week lead-in plus bocepivir for 44 weeks. Um, and um, they presented results for um, most of the null responders. And what they saw was an SVR rate of 38% in prior null responders who were retreated with now bocepivir in the mix. So I think, you know, it's relatively small numbers. Um, but 
as we've said for most of these things, probably comparable response rates in null responders with bocepivir as we've seen with tilapivir. What I don't have is breakdown of fibrosis stage in addition to the prior null response with bocepivir. So that kind of leads us to, would you treat this guy or would you wait for something else? And I think Dr. Osborne showed this earlier, so I won't belabor the point. There are lots of different um, targets and lots of different drugs in now phase three trials, advanced stages of phase three trials that will probably be coming on the market in the next year and a half to two years. Separately, they won't have been studied together necessarily. So, um, you know, that still leaves some issues about how you might combine them and what actual approaches you're going to use. Um, this was the, the little bit of co-infected data that was presented with sofosbuvir, GS7977, the nucleotide inhibitor of the polymerase. And just here, if you look at this, so right here we have in green is genotype 1. These are their viral kinetics over the first week with um, sofosbuvir. And then if you see here in the red, kind of our genotype 1 co-infected patients. Um, and genotype 2, 3 co-infected patients in the kind of bright blue. Just to show that at least early on, viral kinetics are no different with sofosbuvir in combination um, in co-infected patients versus mono-infected patients. And probably not surprising given how potent sofosbuvir is, especially early on in therapy and in pretty much in all the clinical trials regardless, there's been nobody that hasn't responded at least initially to sofosbuvir and suppressed. So, um, but nice to see the data and we don't have drug-drug interaction data yet, but if, if you were going to guess, Jen, how do you think sofosbuvir will behave? So there is an abstract at, a at ASLD coming up? Coming, okay. Yes. And um, I haven't seen the poster, haven't seen the presentation, so I don't know the specifics, but there are some interactions, which is surprising oh. because sofosbuvir is a nucleotide analog. It's not metabolized by cytochrome P450 enzymes, so you would think it would have fewer interactions, but it's nucleoside nucleotides are not devoid of interactions. They can still have transporter-mediated interactions. There can still be intracellular phosphorylation uh, interactions. And also, the data they're presenting are not with uh, intracellular pharmacology. It's only plasma levels, and um, I'm not what? impressed with plasma levels. Yeah. And Gilead knows how to measure intracellular levels, so they should be looking at that. But <laughs> plasma levels uh, were affected um, oh, for, okay. for GS7977, as well as the um, antiretrovirals. The conclusion of the abstract is that none of these are clinically relevant. Um, but uh, I'm sure that remains to be seen. I mean, for certain patients, it could be clinically relevant. Okay. I mean, you, you talked about when you add several agents on board, how you can have an increase in tenofovir levels. Right. And, and with tenofovir, we have potentially renal complications. We don't know what side effects we have from sofosbuvir, so I don't know what higher sofosbuvir levels might mean, but with many drugs, we find out what adverse effects they have after they make it to market. So right. anyway, interactions may be a consideration for this drug. Okay. Okay, so you decide to treat this guy with a protease inhibitor. You talk about, as we've kind of you know, said, you talk about how each treatment is done, the side effect profiles, and he, he wasn't fired up about the tilaprovir side effect profile, especially the rash and the uh, anal pruritus. So he elects to go with both seprovir treatment. Here's his baseline values. Again, 1A, high viral load, pretty normal CBC. So he's treated with PEG-2B, 1.5 mics, sub-QQ week, ribavirin, 600 milligrams, POBID, so 1,200 milligrams, and then, again, bocepravir, 800 TID, which will start after the lead-in. So by week four, so this is after his lead-in, he's tolerating therapy relatively well. He's gone from 3.3 million to 987,000, so not an overwhelming response. Um, his white count's gone down, though, to 1.7. His hemoglobin's 11.2. Um, so bocepravir started at 800 milligrams with food, and by week eight now, so after four weeks of bocepravir, he's gone down to 33,000. So he's had a two-log drop after adding bocepravir in for four weeks. What are his chances of responding to continued therapy? Good, bad, or ugly? Optimists in the crowd. <laughs> so a lot of you think good or bad, but not, not as many think ugly. Marion, which one do you come down on? I come down on the ugly. All right. Uh, pessimist, typical. Okay. But this is what uh, Dr. Peters is alluding to, so she knows. Um, so he had less than a one-log decrease during his lead-in. Um, and then after four weeks of bocepravir, what did he do? He had about a two-log decrease, right? So he would have been in the less than three-log category at week eight after introduction of the bocepravir for four weeks. 
And so at least based on kind of post hoc analyses of mono-infected patients, um, he's essentially at a 0% level here chance of getting response. Again, it's not a formal stopping criteria, but um, his chances are not good at this point of uh, going continuing therapy and having a sustained response to bocepravir. Okay, so now you kept going though to week 12, and now his RNA level is 5,290 IUs per mil. What would you do now? So we're at week 12 of therapy. Continue, stop everything, stop bocepravir. Continue, but send a resistance test or switch to telaprevir. Okay, great. 83% say stop everything, and uh, I think that's what I would do. Marion, would you do anything different? No. No? Yeah, good. And we'll briefly touch on some of these other issues, but I think, um, oh, okay, another question right away. How likely is he to have detectable resistant variants if you did sequence? So he's got a viral load of 5,000 at week 12 of therapy. If you, if you do send off a sequencing test, is, is he likely to have resistance at this point? What do you think? Fifty-three percent say pretty darn certain, greater than eighty-five percent chance, uh, and I would agree with that. That's where I would come down on this. And I think we'll just briefly. Melissa Osborne kind of mentioned resistance a little bit. I'll just I think talk a slide or two here. But so here's data with telaprevir and bocepravir. This is the Prove One and Two studies. They're phase two studies. Um, these were the percentages of patients who broke through. So seven percent broke through um, in geno with genotype one A and two percent in one Bs, but all of them had resistance if they broke through. On therapy, if they broke through, if they had a relapse, so the, the virus comes back after they had stopped the telaprevir-based therapy, um, still the vast majority had resistance mutations. Only these, this small percentage of patients here with black had wild-type virus when it was sequenced if they relapsed after therapy was over. A similar but different way of showing this is the percentage who had resistant variants treated with um, bocepravir. So if they had a less than one log decrease during their lead-in, they were much more likely to have resistant variants occur during therapy. Again, just kind of highlighting that interferon is still kind of the linchpin of these just one protease inhibitor added on type therapies. And if you don't have an interferon responsive patient, you're much more likely to have failure and have breakthrough with resistance. Um, and again, this is something that Dr. Osborne alluded to. But once you develop resistance, again, HCV doesn't integrate. It's not a retrovirus. There's no long-lived cellular reservoir that we know about. So what was seen in the phase three studies is 70 74% overall who failed to laprevir had resistant variants when they finished. They continued to sequence them over a year and a half by population sequencing. You see gradual loss to resistant variants until by the time you get out to a year and a half, essentially 96% have gone back to wild type, at least by population sequencing. So um, the limited detection there, probably about 20% of the viral population um, at least. You'd have to have a resistance mutation 20% to, to find it reliably with population sequencing. Um, and they're just, it differs by their subtype largely because of the fitness of the variants they get in the different 1A versus 1B subtypes. Um, and there's similar data with bocepravir. I won't belabor it. Essentially looks uh, almost identical in terms of the decrease. So would you send an HCV genotype resistant test on this patient? Just really, this is kind of a, again, no right answer just to gauge kind of where the audience is and if you're sending resistance tests. vast majority would not send a resistance test, and, and we don't. Um, in general, Marion, are you guys sending resistance tests at all? No, we're not, because it, it's not going to change what you do. We don't have right. any, if it changed what we did, we'd think about it. Yeah. Exactly. It is available, <laughs> just so you know. Um, it, through LabCorp, actually, again, Monogram uh, does it through LabCorp. So it is available, but um, Again, Melissa had this. There's so much cross-resistance between telaprevir and bocepravir. Again, there's, you don't really have a viable option to do anything with it when you get the data anyway. Um, so again, as Marion said, I think right now for sure there's really not a lot of clinical utility in doing it. 
Um, and again, this is just what we said. There's really no clinical utility right now um, because there are no other treatment options and um, interferon response is really what drives the overall response. I'm kind of speeding up because there's this last case I wanted to get to here. We have about 10 minutes left. Um, so this is a 32-year-old MSM with HIV who's well-controlled on boosted atazanavir-based regimen who comes in for an evaluation for abnormal LFTs that were just found on routine follow-up. He does have a history of STIs with GCN syphilis, um, but he's got no other complaints. He's got a normal exam, but when you check his ALT and AST, they're 470 and 141, and in previously in June of this year, they had been normal. His total bilirubin's mildly elevated at 1.7, but with a pretty normal direct bilirubin, probably reflecting his atazanavir more than anything else. On further questioning, he had had a relapse with meth, so he had smoked it, not injected it, and then in the course of that relapse, it had some anonymous sexual encounters at a bathhouse. Um, we talked to him specifically, he had multiple sexual partners at that time, more than six. He'd had receptive, receptive anal intercourse. Um, he did then, when we really pointedly questioned, maybe had an episode of some fatigue, mild abdominal discomfort, and clay-colored stools about uh, six weeks after this encounter in June um, in the bathhouse. Um, we already knew he was hepatitis A and hepatitis B immune. Um, and we had a hepatitis C antibody that was checked um, earlier in, in the year, and sorry, just recently, um, about a, right when he came in with the abnormal, or a month after he came in with the abnormal LFTs in November that was negative. So what do you think the most likely diagnosis is and what are the appropriate next steps? Do you think this is an atazanavir hepatotoxicity and you should change his antiretrovirals? Is this acute hepatitis E? Acute HCV, checking HCV RNA, autoimmune hepatitis, so you're gonna get some IgG levels, autoantibodies, or could this be HBV reactivation, even though he looks like he's HBV immune, so you're gonna check a DNA. Somebody watching Harry Potter? Oh, is this the music for this? Oh, we came up with that one. Okay, so most of you are thinking about acute HCV and want to get an HCV RNA. Marion, any other thoughts? Um, I do that. It's not an atazanavir hepatotoxicity. It doesn't occur. That causes unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, which is glucuronyl transferase suppression, um, maybe only in patients with Gilbert's, but hasn't been clearly studied. Acute hep E is always a possibility in the HIV population, especially if he's over 50, Autoimmune, it's a complicated one because HIV patients can have high IgG levels, yeah. as you know, but I'd be less impressed given his history of um, STD and uh, a defined uh, um, mm -hmm. unwelcome sexual encounter, not thought out well sexual <laughs> encounter, yeah. and he doesn't have hep B reactivation because he was surface antibody positive. Yeah. Okay, great. And so I just, I'm sure you are all very aware of this, especially practicing here and a lot of you doing HIV care, um, of the epidemic of acute HCV is being seen in HIV-positive MSM. This is data from the Swiss cohort. Um, in red here are the um, MSMs and the incidence of hepatitis C infection. So the uh, incidence dramatically increasing here over the last several years in the Swiss cohort. And this is just really one of many data sets I could show you demonstrating a, a dramatic increase in the incidence of hepatitis C and HIV-positive MSM in particular. There's data out of, obviously, um, Amsterdam, the UK, Paris, um, Germany, and then New York in particular, and San Francisco have been pretty well described as in addition, um, and we certainly see it in San Diego as well. Um, so what about screening for acute hepatitis C in those with HIV? I think some important points to remember. So there can be a delayed antibody response. You saw this patient still was antibody negative in November when we think he acquired hepatitis C in June. Um, and this has been looked at in several kind of retrospective analyses of prospectively stored serum, um, where it looks like the mean time to serial conversion for co-infected patients is around seven months, whereas for traditionally we'd say within two to three months most mono-infected patients convert. Um, and in rare instances you can see serial conversion even later out after a year, 5% in this study. Um, but the vast majority will have elevated ALTs. So I just pulled off the neat consensus statement about their recommendations. I think we do a pretty good job of obviously everybody when they initially come into HIV care of getting an HCV antibody. Um, but then uh, HIV-infected MSMs who are at high risk for contracting hepatitis C should really be screened at six months intervals. Again, I think we get this on most of our patients who are on antiretroviral therapy. 
probably every three months we get an ALT and an AST, at least we do pretty routinely. So that's probably also pretty effectively obtained in most um, HIV positive patients. Um, and then other ones with HIV infection, IDUs at high risk should be screened three months after a diagnosis or last exposure. Um, and then the last part is really a NAT or an, for HCV, so a nucleic acid test for HCV RNA should be performed if you have a high suspicion. So he is HCV RNA positive, 4.7 million, he's 1A. What are his chances of responding to just PEG and ribavirin therapy? So acute HCV treatment with PEG and ribavirin in co-infected patients. So we've got kind of a smattering of different responses here. Most are going with either 60 to 80% or greater than 80%. Oh, and 8% would use a DAA as well. Marion, would you give them a DAA? We don't have any data on it. Certainly for mono-infection, it's much greater than 80% who respond from the JACL data in the New England Journal. It's not a randomized controlled study. But for co-infected patients, they have a much lower response. So the argument is, well, if there are only 60% who are going to respond, why not give them DAA as yeah. well? But uh, we're not doing it. I think right. the NEAT cohort is oh, really? going to do it. I'm going not quite sure. Okay. Yeah, we, we wouldn't use the DAA either. We would just do standard pegylate interferon and ribavirin therapy. Um, here is actually from the NEAT consensus conference. They kind of had a table of of what studies there are in co-infected patients' treatment of acute HCV. It's, it's very difficult, though. None of these are randomized controlled trials. Um, it's difficult to standardize when you start treatment because there's a lot of unknowns about when exactly they acquired HCV. Um, but most, if you look here in the, in the brackets, the percentages range from somewhere about 60%, somewhere in 80, 65. Aside from this one lone study that had just um, 10 patients that had a 0%, most are in the 60 to 80% range for co-infected patients with PEG and ribavirin. And then this is the presentation from Croy, Christopher Bosecki from the NEAT cohort, um, which was kind of an interesting study. Uh, they, again, this is not a randomized controlled trial, so there's no control of who gets what therapy, but they had this interesting kind of um, observation that patients who were infected with um, genotypes 2-3, um, if you look at the genotypes 2-3 here in red, um, of the ones who got SVR, um, they found uh, a very high rate, obviously, of SVR for genotypes 2-3, but then if they did not, if they were not treated with ribavirin, that dropped from 94% SVR for 2-3s down to 60%. So the, the thrust of their presentation was you should probably be using ribavirin even for genotypes 2-3 with acute infection. We routinely use ribavirin for all our acute treatment. We use PEG and ribavirin together, um, and I think most people do. Marion, are you guys using ribavirin for acute HIV? Yes, HIV we are. For acute hep C and HIV, we use both. Mono-infected, do you use both? Uh, no. Really? Okay. We do. At Colorado, we use both. Use both for mono-infected, too, mm -hmm. if they're acute? Mm -hmm. are, you, are people seeing a lot of acute HCV infection in your HIV-positive patients? Yes. Okay. Are you treating them? Yep. Oh, all right. Thank you. And, oh, so we've had, this is the last slide, I think. So we've had um, a couple co-infected patients treated in a clinical trial, including DAAs who have then gotten reinfected shortly after they um, completed the trial. And uh, this was data, again, this is the Amsterdam cohort, um, where they had patients who were treated for their acute HCV infection. All of them appeared to have an SVR. Um, and then within um, two years, seven of the 26 looked to be reinfected. Um, so that was an incidence of 20 cases per 100 patient years. So very high rate of reinfection. So I think it's just something we need much more education. A lot of patients don't still understand that they can get hepatitis C from sexual transmission. Uh, and so it's an, an area where a lot of work still needs to be done with education, I think, in terms of patients and providers about reinfection. I think that's it. Okay, so we have some questions. Oh, we're on napkins now. Okay. So let's see, the napkin question. Given the numerous gaps in data and the complexity of the data that exists, is it prudent for providers in non-academic settings to be 
testing co-infected patients with, to be treating co-infected patients with three drug HCV treatments? Well, I, I don't think we have enough data, and certainly there are lots and lots of clinical trials available in the Bay Area. So it, it, with groups who give a lot of support, et cetera, it seems the ideal way to treat patients. I think if we run out of clinical studies, then you should be doing it, perhaps. Yeah. How about this one? Would you treat or transplant... Pa oh, wait. Methadone maintenance. Is that an old one? We, we treat... We'll treat patients on methadone maintenance. I don't know. Do you treat anybody on methadone if they're on maintenance? We haven't. You haven't? Let's see. Here we go. Should nearly all HIV hep C co-infected patients be on heart prior to initiation of HCV treatment? Our outcomes better. You want to take a stab? Well, the right now the the uh, thought is that people should treat HIV regardless of CD4 cell count. Right. right. So um, <laughs> I would say probably yes, we should get our patients on antiretroviral therapy before initiating Hep C treatment. So. But both the phase two studies had patients who were not on heart and did well. But in yeah. San Francisco, I don't think you're allowed to have HIV and not be on therapy. Yeah. Uh, same thing for, I mean, we haven't treated anybody who's not on antiretroviral therapy. Um, we have a couple long-term non-progressors, quote-unquote. Um, we actually got referred to some of the studies for the no-art arms. But um, in general, we're putting it, everybody's on antiretroviral therapy first, and then they get treated for their HCV. Um, many, blah, blah, blah. Where or how should one determine PGP interaction and its clinical significance? Let me see. What does it say? Ooh. Many something look at P450. I don't know. Can you read the rest of that? Many interactions for P450. Oh. <laughs> so they're looking, what about PGP interactions? That's how I feel about the whole thing. <laughs> There's another drug-drug interaction okay. study, too. Okay, good. Question. Let, me, let me tackle this one first. <laughs> so, PGP interactions are difficult. So first of all, our understanding of transporters really is in its infancy. I mean, we don't understand transporters and transporter-mediated interactions the way we understand cytochrome P450-mediated interactions, so it's tough. But transporter-mediated interactions, if um, we suspect them, they tend to be with drugs that rely heavily on transporters, like statins, for instance. We know they need OP1B1 to be taken up by the liver. And then the other classic PGP drugs would be like digoxin that we looked at um, uh, with bisoprevir and telaprevir. So we, we kind of have an idea already which classes of drugs are highly reliant on transporters for their uh, transport. And so those are ones that automatically we should consider with telaprevir and bisoprevir. But Others, it, it is more complex. And I think that that Liverpool website is actually a pretty good one also for pointing out um, interactions that could occur at the level of transporters, such as PGP. Okay, next one. Oh, this is a good question. Actually, um, <laughs> yes. So this is, are there drug-drug interactions to consider with bisoprevir and telaprevir and agents uh, used in persons who are transgendered? or taking medications um, for trans, uh, uh, transgendered individuals. And there are interactions with ethanyl estradiol and um, uh, progestins. So ethanyl estradiol is reduced 25% by both telaprevir and bosepravir. So it is, it is highly likely that estrogens are going to be lowered and that you're going to require higher doses of those, okay? The progestins, it's a mixed effect. So bosepravir raises drosperinone levels, and it actually doubles them. So you could have more progestin-related side effects with bosepravir. But with telaprevir, progestins are lowered a little bit, just a little bit, like 11%. So it's um, difficult to keep these straight in your head. I was just going to um, ask you how you remember all these numbers. I don't know because I have a baby and I can hardly remember my name some days. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the ethanol estradiol one is pretty important because you know we have to, with the ribavirin, we absolutely have to protect our patients from getting pregnant. 
And so the fact that telaprevir and bisoprevir make oral contraceptives no longer efficacious, at least ethanoestradiol-based ones, is kind of scary. So I, I am aware of that one. And with telaprevir, they did measure ovulation or they measured progesterone to see if the patients ovulated and they did ovulate. So even that 25% reduction definitely had um, a clinical impact. So I know we're not talking about preventing pregnancy here, we're talking about transgendered individuals, but there is absolutely a potential for interactions with estrogen and with progestins that need to be considered and you will have to adjust the doses of those medications. Good question. Great. I think this is our last question. So this is what percent of acute HCV spontaneously clear and when would you start treatment? I'm assuming mostly talking about co-infected patients. So um, it's, well, I don't know, you want to take a step first, Mary, or you want me to? Well, it's a difficult question because in acute HCV mono-infection, you can wait for 12 weeks, mm -hmm. and somewhere around a third will clear, or maybe 40 or 50% higher in women, higher in younger people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to matter if you wait for 12 to 16 weeks to start therapy. But the NEAT data suggests that fewer patients seroconvert, around about 20 to 24% clear, and even if they do, they may come back. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that if you don't treat in about the 8 to 12 weeks, the patients may go on to become chronic and have more severe disease. So we tend to do an HCV RNA level at week 4, and then week six or eight, and if it's going up, we treat. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There are no data to yeah. answer this. Yeah. What do you do, Dave? Yeah, we generally treat them sooner. We don't give them much chance. I mean, you, yeah, you can look for this two-log drop over the first four weeks, and that's an indication that they may be tending towards clearance. But I think you're right. I mean, I don't think we've seen we've seen maybe one that cleared. And the other cautionary tale that Mary kind of uh, Marion kind of alluded to is we've seen patients come down to undetectable, be undetectable on a check, and then you check again a month or two later and it's back up. So, so repeat it. Don't be fooled by a single negative HCV RNA in somebody who's got acute infection. 